You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I dropped an amazing episode with Dom Grimal of The Last Felony, Ion Dissonance, and Cryptopsy. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Hello and welcome to Indie Ninjas Attack, your secret guide to music industry domination for indies, managers, and artists. Powered by Indie.Ninja, the freelance platform for the music business. I'm your host, Matt Bacon of Dropout Media. And on these podcasts, we will be having real, practical conversations with some of the most respective names in the business. From the studio to marketing, we'll get you covered. On today's episode of Indie Ninjas Attack, we have the one and only Jesse Cannon, one of my favorite writers, authors, content creators in the music industry education space. His book, Get More Fans, really inspired me when I was maybe 20, really opened a lot of my mind about how to do stuff within the music business. And it's an honor to sit down with him, talk with him about really a huge, huge variety of things, ranging from hiring people to scams within the music industry to so much more. This is a really interesting, really deep episode. Let's get into the show. So I'm sitting here virtually with my dear friend, Jesse Cannon, music industry impresario. He wrote a book that really (laughs) impacted my life when I was a very young person called Get More Fans. He's a political journalist, basically, and of course, a uh, very noted mastering engineer. Uh, am I missing anything else? I, I, I'm always happy with any of those things, so I really appreciate the kind words. Uh, we could say YouTuber, too. That oh, yeah, sound YouTuber, like I'm way, yeah. way younger than I am. I mean, you know, you and I, uh, you and I have a YouTube video. It's true. We do have a YouTube video. That's, the, that's both a YouTube video and a podcast. Yes. Where I, where I ranted about Gary V. How are you doing today, first and foremost? Oh, I, 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 I'm, uh, I'm actually feeling very good today. I got a, you know, it's been a nice morning of um, mixing songs, and then I go into the studio with John Joseph uh, a little later this afternoon to do some vocals. So I feel like I'm going to get, I'm a little tired, but I'm going to get real motivated because that's what John does. That's crazy that you even know him. Oh, I've done two books with John. Uh, I did uh, Evolution of a Cro-Magnon and the PMA Effect. And then this is this is our first music project together, though. We have a bunch of other stuff to get into, but how did you get to know that guy? Uh, so he's on Equal Vision Records, and I've done a ton of work for Equal Vision Records uh, over the years. And they needed somebody who was good at audiobook production and I've actually done a lot of audiobooks I've been doing audiobooks since 1999 mm-hmm. and you know it's like one of those things just like how my living is very much in podcasting now uh, I always have been that person who's 
you know, I'm one good at audio and two, I'm a fucking nerd who reads things all day and knows how big words are supposed to be pronounced. So that's basically the qualifications to produce audio books is pronounce big words well, understand context, understand how things do and edit audio well. So, uh, yeah, I ended up doing that with him and John and I became good friends. I don't get to often hang out with people from that era of hardcore, Mm -hmm. but every time it's so exciting to get to talk to someone who is really part of an original American music. Yeah. And his, I mean, that book we did, uh, evolution of a crying, you know, the stories are just insane. Like they're, they're literally, I'd say, uh, 10% of the time was, uh, editing is erasing me laughing from being like, these stories are fucking insane. I can only imagine. But just before we get into the other stuff, because this is an important grounding mm-hmm. for both you and I, and also Indie Ninja, the company sponsoring this. Yes. To what extent, you know, has a background in hardcore allowed you to become a music industry professional and then a political science professional? Is that what you call it? I, I would call myself... Uh, I. I, I don't want to put the science in that because you get a degree for that. But uh, sure, everything I, you know I have mean, done is, is yes. I don't know exactly what you mean, and I, and the answer is, punk and hardcore has been the greatest networking thing I've ever done in my entire life. Because here's a great example. So I work at the Daily Beast doing this podcast called The New Abnormal. We're of all one million one hundred thousand podcasts, we are in the top fifty most popular podcasts. I got that job because I recorded the Daily Beast. Noah Schachtman in 1999 and Spencer Ackerman, who's the head of foreign policy at the Daily Beast, uh, or I should say a foreign policy journalist at the Daily Beast. Uh, Spencer Ackerman was the drummer in my punk hardcore screamo electronic band in about 1999. And all of these things happened because I'm competent, but also because I got uh, recommended because people know who I am from networking quote unquote, I've done in the hardcore scene. And yes, you know, the nice thing is, is you make deep bonds with people and people see you doing good work. I wouldn't have gotten this job if I had never edited a podcast before, but they were able to see that I was doing really big and interesting podcasts for years. So yes, everything, everything always happens because I meet people who are a part of a community and that community gives me recommendations. I mean, literally while I was saying this answer, I was getting a text from somebody else who is in that world, whose band I've been listening to for 20 years, but I've never met, but got recommended from another person, another band I recorded. You and I met really like officially kind of through Mike Edison, who was Mm -hmm. in a bunch of those bands and opened for Reagan youth and like knew the Ramones and, Mike Edison is great. Go read his book. Yes. It's fun everywhere I go. It's so much fun. It's, it's so much fun. It's just like, just such a fucking life well lived. One thing I found, and, it's, and I think it's easy to look at it through rose colored glasses, but one thing I found is that there's a lot, a lot of culture that revolves around connections from the hardcore scene. Mm-hmm. Everything from, you know, stuff like this and the political stuff you're outlining to like, the fucking Avit brothers were a hardcore band first. I did not know that. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That's just, just, I don't hear that in their music and usually you can hear it. <laughs> what do you think it is about hardcore that it acts as such a breeding ground for people to be 
um, in creative fields in the future. Well, so I think it's really interesting. I actually just launched this other podcast called Killed by Desk yeah. with um, a couple guys who I literally met when I was teenagers in punk and hardcore. And what we do is we talk to people about their day jobs post punk and hardcore. So what I think is so interesting that we continually find is that, you know, what they call in the business world now a self-starter, which I find to be like a really virgin term. Um <laughs> It really is just that thing that, like, because the stuff we're doing, like, let's be honest, punk and hardcore is some of the dumbest, easiest music you can play. Like, I often joke to be a proficient hardcore or punk guitarist that's about 40 hours of practicing in your room, and most people don't even fucking do that. Like, it's pathetic how low entry it is. But that low entry then gives you a work ethic when you get a reaction from people who say, oh, well, I did this, and there was a reaction, and... People seem to like things, and it's a huge thing of encouragement. And, you know, there's a lot to be said, like, these days in culture. Like, people really make fun of um, the every child gets a gold star concept. But to me, punk is kind of an origin of that in that you're not really doing something that's that exceptional. Like, it moves... Like some of these bands, you know, 50 people ever listened to the song more than once. They walked out on most of your shows. You played to 15 people, but you feel empowered from it. And that's that same concept of why every kid gets a gold star is because you need that encouragement. And so punk and hardcore is this breeding ground that at a crucial point in your life, you're depressed. You're feeling really shitty about yourself. You're feeling alone. You're not making connections. You suddenly make connections and you get encouragement. And that really does a thing to kick off a lot of people's lives. And that's also what makes it the greatest networking grounds ever made because all these people end up still doing things. Like literally this podcast called by desk is just laughable at when you look at how many people are humongously successful that as we put uh, that we barely had any respect for when we were children and watching their bands. <laughs> <laughs> But it's so true because it's like I, I met Ghostman when he was no one. He played my friend Max's garage. Uh -huh. And that was a really weird show because like his parents were still in the house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, that, that's a weird vibe. <laughs> you know, whatever. Like, you know, like, yeah. And it's just it, it's interesting to see how those things happen. And then the people you get reconnected with years later. And it's like, oh, you and I were part of the same mm -hmm. dumb thing. Yeah, and, it, you know, it's even just the thing of, like, I remember reading, so for my last book on creativity, I read a lot of stuff on marriage counseling. And I read this because I was writing about why bands fight so much, which is, you know, a reality we all know. And, but what the interesting thing I learned in there was, was that when you first meet somebody that, commonality actually blurs your judgment of somebody that every time you find you out that you have something that you feel isn't a common experience that you've normally had a commonality with somebody. So like liking friends are the office. You're not going to have this dopamine release because so many people like that, but like that you were into the same dumb band or you knew about the same dumb thing and you could finally talk to somebody about this when that's not a normal experience for you gives you this amazing cloud that allows the person to have other flaws. 
So then the problem is then you marry that person because of that cloud because they liked some shitty weird band you liked. And then you wonder why you fight all day. <laughs> but the nice point of this was in networking, people get clouded. like, you know, when you have a straight job, you're like, oh, you meet that one person at the workplace that gets the punk thing. And you're like, hell yeah. And then all of a sudden you like that person a little bit more and then you let them get away with something a little bit more. Yeah. And and and, it, and it's funny, but like that's definitely how a lot of the world works. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like I always tell people, like if you understood how much money I made knowing everything about eighties and nineties hardcore, <laughs> you, like you wouldn't want to be my friend. Mm-hmm. Because it's like I I, I believe that. I, I mean, I don't know, <laughs> like. When I started to put together, like, oh, like the fact that I know Andy, who was an inside out and shelter, means all these other people respect me now. Or the fact that I know Dean Rispler, who knows literally every single human being in the world. Yes, um, every single being in the world. Well, like Dean was a, was someone who that definitely like started to click for me. Uh, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, like all these people just like trust me because Dean said I was cool. Yep, that's a uh, that's a hundred percent what he does. I mean, I would say that at least 15% of my career was made on people Dean gave me recommendations to. You know, what this kind of ties into is how does that, how does that impact who you hire for things? How does that impact who, how people should think about hiring? My thing that's interesting with hiring is I have two legs to it. Is one I always say, like, I can teach somebody to be pretty competent. Like, even um, the last two weeks, um, my assistant wasn't around. So I had to get somebody to fill in. Mm-hmm. And I had somebody I was thinking about for a second. And, you know, uh, I like that person. Uh, but then I talked to a friend who was really, you know, he hasn't worked forever. But, you know, he could tune vocals. And... You know, most of what I need is drum editing and tuning vocals when it comes to record production because I'm just, I mean, I'll be that person. I'm above doing that because I don't want to do basically what we would call audio data entry at this point in my career. And so this Fred, I was like, you know, I know this person's responsible. He tour manages a humongous band. Um, You can't get away with being irresponsible and uh, tour manage a band that big. And then two... He's a good person. I like interfacing when we have fun. And so I'm like, you know, that goes above. I know he doesn't know how to do this as well as he should yet. He's not going to be at the level, but I know I can teach that. So I care a lot about that. I'm dealing with a responsible, good human who's going to do what they said they would do and do what you said you would do. I think is probably one of the most important barometers of this, but also just that I like the person. But then there is the funny thing of that. Some people I hire for things. I'm like, well, I'm going to have three emails with them. So I don't really care if I like them. I just care that I like their work. But I spell out very clearly what my terms are. And I actually made a whole video about this for my YouTube channel that like, you know, people think if you say this is due on Tuesday, it's going to be there on Tuesday. I talk a lot about how I actually get people to deliver that stuff and do the thing because for some people, I'm just like, well, hey, their work looks good. Who cares what their personality is? I'm probably never going to talk to them after three meal emails again. Do you feel people have a similar attitude when they're hiring you as a mastering engineer or audio guy? So 
what I find my work uh, that people recommend me for as what's called mixer or master engineer, where I'm never going to meet the band or I won't meet the band before we work together, uh, largely comes from two places. Is one, you saw my name on the back of a record, or two, somebody said, I'm the person to work with. Um, it's very funny. I have a bunch of Google SEO things. And they, what I always say is they get me the worst work I do. Like it's always like a terrible band or it's uh, people who are absolutely mentally ill and horrible to work with Um, because I don't find that the people I work with that are the best just go, hmm, oh, well, I went to poppunkmixing.com and this is the guy that came up. Yeah. Just not thorough research. You know, one of the things I tell people all the time is, you know, I've been very lucky in what a lot of my career about my YouTube channel, my books are about is the things I've seen that make musicians, artists, whatever, exceptional. And um, the thing you see with the best groups is they've done a lot of research. Yeah. Like it's shocking to watch how fluent some people are in like bands that about music videos and things like that. And if, they, and if they're not the one that's fluent about it, someone on their team is like, you know, you're seeing this emergence now of the creative director in music that like, you know, you have these pilled out uh, musicians, rappers would be pop stars. Then they have to have the creative director because they're not paying attention to it. And they're giving this person a large percentage of it. But then you have so many of the artists who are just, who are people like me, like, you know, like I come home at night after a 14 hour day and I watch music videos for another 45 minutes to keep my finger on the pulse of what I'm going to uh, talk about. And, you know, knowing which directors are doing cool things, who I'm going to recommend and what I'm going to give creative direction to the artists I work with. And, you know, that is a real thing is that, you know, most people really have done the majority of the research, but there's also a thing too that I think a recommendation. Um, oftentimes, I think the smartest thing before you know what your vision is, and if you're not one of those people who's made a scrapbook and has a vision board for what your project is, turning to your smartest friend and saying, "Hey, who's the dude?" has worked out really well for a lot of people. Absolutely, absolutely, and I don't think anyone really understands that that like part of being a part of your scene means knowing people in your scene because when you know people in your scene they can tell you this is someone I should hire yeah and that that is the I think it's the, the seed and then two oftentimes it's two is it's the budget price point is that you may know you know like it's very easy to sit there and be like oh yeah uh, Ross Robinson makes records I like and it's like yeah well you can't afford Ross Robinson so then you have to ask who's doing work like that at a lower level and uh, so I think, you know, both both those things I tend to find work out very well for people, those angles. Yeah. And so I guess kind of on that point, in this world, we have a lot of things that will automatically master your record for you. <laughs> yeah. We have we also have a lot of pro- producers or mixers who are not mastering guys, but who will throw it in just as a bonus because mm-hmm. they need it done or that someone needs to do it and, and they can do it for another 150 bucks instead of another 500 or whatever. Why should someone hire a dedicated mastering engineer? 
let's take both of those in separate questions. So what we call algorithmic mastering, where the computer does it from a service like Lander. Yeah. Uh, mastering, oftentimes, the biggest differences that are made are I, you know, like I just worked with a mixer who has, you know, I have two gold records. This person has 20, but they send me something to master. And I'm like, dog, uh, you know, in the last song, the kick drum is kind of not there. And they're like, oh, yeah, you know, we've been working on this one forever. I just got used to that. Really? I should go back to the band and tell them that. And objectivity is a huge thing. So then that is like the big one. But really, the other one is those mastering services still sound like shit compared to anyone who's competent. Yeah. And the price point is not that different for what you can buy in competent mastering. Like I know my rate is not that much different, but what I give is very similar. And what's funny is all those algorithmic mastering things are just basically following these human hearing profiles. And the funny thing is, is when I or most people master, we load those up to give us a choice we, we basically turn those algorithmic mastering things on and go, hmm, what would this do? Do I hear anything that, that's making me reconsider my decision? Okay, no or yes, moving on. And the human reaction to it is important. And what I will also say is the worst, most, you know, it, it's all venture capital has made this. And the biggest problem that music collides with, with uh, entrepreneurial mindset bullshit and, I, you know, I'm a business-minded guy and I'm a creative person. I've written a book on business. I've written a book on creativity. Music is all about emotional connection. We've all heard people make music that we should like and it falls flat for some reason. It's because there's an emotional thing that disconnects in it. There's an emotional problem in the music when it doesn't connect to us that we don't feel. So with mastering... I'm not sitting there like, oh, is there enough 10K and 60 hertz? I'm trying to get the fucking track to bang. When you hear anybody who's a professional who's made records people connect with, they talk about the emotional thing, and that is real. It's not some bullshit lie. Is that you're trying to get it to feel good to you. The computer does not do that. So you're basically seeding that your mix is now going to have an unchecked thing from a computer on it when it's that. So then we get into the inexperienced producer. Now, I will say this. Mastering tools are getting very good, but there is a thing to that a person who's an expert and who really focuses on this. Now, I should say, I still produce records. I don't produce them as often as I used to because I mostly master, and that's what people have really grabbed onto. I, you know, Much like my mentor, Alan Douches, I wanted to be a producer, and then the mastering thing just people responded way better to that than my productions. And at some point you say, well, I have 25 mastering requests of very interesting records to do and three requests to produce. Well, I guess I should do these 25 this week. Um, so you make a decision. But the point being, the people who've really honed into that, you're watching it. You know, the amount of things I have to pay attention to and stay up on, like even this week, I found a new technology that is like brought my mastering up 10%. And that happens really regularly, but it means I have to keep my ear to the ground on that. The same way a producer these days is keeping their ear to the ground on, you know, which amp sims are doing the best thing and all these things. And I don't think there's enough attention paid to that, 
you know, you really do need to do the same thing. It's, it's, you know, much like the last conversation you and I had is we were talking about Facebook ads. And I told you, like, I don't know all the optimization things uh, that I should anymore because I've decided to concentrate on strategy instead of nitpicking things. What I do is I recommend people to you when somebody wants to actually get a Facebook ad program because I've decided I need to narrow my lane of expertise so I can focus on every bit of it being way better than everybody else. This is where it gets interesting, you know, and then so because kind of the other thing I think that I've always I understand to some extent with mastering, but I kind of want your input on Mm -hmm. is like you said, with mastering, you're not really meeting the band until it's done. I'd say 60% of the big records I've done, I've never met the band. I mean, I mastered something for the singer of Coldplay yesterday. I don't think I'm ever going to meet him. So something I I sort of know the answer to, but I genuinely want some input on because I think it is a valid question. So you're not meeting the artists before you see them or before you do the record, right? Or at all. Your creative input is in many ways kind of minimal. Mastering is not the most creative thing, but it can be at times. I mean, there's some records I've done really wild things to, but... Absolutely, but it's not... There's not as much canvas to, to paint on. Yeah, and so my question is like... And obviously there's a difference between getting like Alan, Alan Douches and getting whoever from down the road. Mm-hmm. Yes. But how do you even determine between sort of the mid-range guys... You know, how do you determine what mastering engineer is right for you? How do you determine which of the, you know, of the the 20 guys who do mid-range records in metal, you know, the bands who play third on the five-band bill, of those 20 guys, how do you determine which of those 20 guys is the guy for you? So I think that that's largely discography scraping, is that, you know, so one of the thing lessons I remember learning when I was young is like, this one producer in my local area made this one amazing record with the band. The band went on to be huge. They were actually signed to Atlantic while I was working there. Um, and they'd been a big band for almost 20 years. But all of his records were so terrible aside from that one. And then you realize the thing that, you know, sometimes it's just carrying a glass of water around the, across the room. It's not a hard thing to do because the band's going to guide the person. So what you're looking for is a body of work. So I think this goes for producers, mixers, and mastering engineers is you really are as best as your worst work. And yes, I say yes to everything mastering wise, unless it has racist lyrics in it. Uh, But what I will always say is that like, if you judge the majority of my body of work of, if you're a mid-level band and you're looking through you know, I know what I do, and you can look through other people's discographies. I know what I bring to the table as a set of quality. And that's what you're really looking for is not like, oh, this person can get it done. You're looking for like, this person consistent knows quality. It, you know, there's a very similar thing I learned um, about creators too, is that one of the most important things, and this is why hiring somebody genre specific is often important, is it's much like a lawyer you don't hire a lawyer just because they are, have a law degree. You hire a lawyer because they actually know the standards of a contract. So, for example, if you're a metal band negotiating a contract compared to a pop band negotiating a contract on the biggest labels in each genre, 
the standards for what get included in that contract are totally different. And the same thing goes for mastering is what is happening in pop and the choices you make for pop compared to when I do something. And I should say, I listen to a lot of pop music, so I understand this genre well, but I also understand uh, like indie rock really well. And indie rock is going to want me to dirty and color it. Whereas pop's going to want me to find how I get the most crystal clear sound out of it. And you have to understand what all those things are. And there's a million, that's just like the base level variable. There's tons of other little things and nuances that happen in this work that you just need to understand. And the reason it's important to research and find somebody who gets your aesthetic is exactly that is that they'll understand the nuance of what needs to be done in that genre to make it so that it works for people's ears. There's a reason why you usually see about a dozen people in each genre doing most of the work is they usually have a acute understanding of what the nuance of that genre needs. Absolutely. And that's something I talk about with my client, Fred Kevorkian, who's a pretty very known mastering engineer, very smart guy. And we, you know, we get into this a lot. Mm -hmm. When you understand fundamentally why a genre exists, Mm -hmm. then you can actually get somewhere much more meaningful with it. Yeah. And there's even like interesting things like, you know, it's like funny. I was just mixing a song before this call for Kevin Devine. And so Kevin's very, if you're not familiar with like in the Elliott Smith vein. So what's funny is there's a very big creative choice in the breaths when you mix a song like this. Mm-hmm. The breaths can be honest or taking them out can give a polish. Kevin falls on the side of like that the polish because his vocal has such an honesty to it. It doesn't need that added breath because you're never going to think Kevin's faking it. There's no auto tune, no things like that. Uh So you're able to make different choices along the way and understanding that genre gives me the ability to know which one it is and then having a discussion with them afterwards and saying, here's what my vision is, but make sure you focus on this because I made a big decision about what you handed to me. That makes a lot of sense. And that seems like something that really just comes with a lot of experience. Yes, I did not see how much of a difference the breath made the first four years I was producing. (laughs) Now, you said something in that answer I thought was very interesting. You said, I know what I bring to the table. Mm Mm-hmm. What is it, in a nutshell, that Jesse Cannon brings to the table that maybe another mastering engineer might not, or that you do acutely well? Well, I think one of the most interesting things, if I'm going to brag about myself, um, <laughs> is uh, so when I get together with a lot of people and some people who do great work, um, you know, I had this conversation at the URM Academy with uh, Summit uh, a couple of years ago with like a lot of people I really respect. I, I, I would feel like an asshole to out them because I'm going to kind of trash what they do. But like. I'm talking to them and they're all like, oh, that's so great. You work in podcasts. I don't even listen to music. I haven't listened to a new record in years. I only listen to podcasts. I work really, really, really hard. And when I say I work hard, I mean, I consciously put in hours a week to find new music I'm really excited about. And if I'm being honest, a lot of the time, you know, my my favorite, my friend Olap Moman, who's an amazing producer, has a horrible term for this. Uh, calls it music pedophilia, where you're listening to tons of kids making music. I my favorite artist right now 
one of them is 15 years old. He has under 200,000 plays on Spotify. But I do that because I'm on TikTok, scrolling through the hashtags of micro genres I like. I'm on Spotify playlists, searching through things. I'm reading message boards. I have a great message board where people give me recommendations and I find things. And I work really hard to understand what's changing about music, what's happening in the genres I work in. And I stay acutely aware to both what the sound is changing with. I talk a lot about that with my friends and um, I really, really stay in touch. And I think a lot of people by the time they become experts, they're like, oh, cool. I know this thing. And then their passion dies for it. And then they don't stay in touch. And that's what makes their work suffer. I take it very, 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 very seriously. And I always have that I don't get jaded towards music. I've had points where it's been hard to find music I love, but I've still pushed through and found it. And I'd say like literally like, you know, I have an ongoing playlist of songs that I'm really passionate about that I want to listen to every day. Like right now, I think I have the most songs I've ever put on in a two month period in my entire life uh, right now. That's awesome. That's a very good feeling. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it makes me happy to love music. Ironically, I work doing a lot of podcasts and I don't really love a lot of podcasts right now. <laughs> Why don't you put in the same amount of effort to podcasts that you do to music? That is a phenomenal follow up. I actually do. I listen to tons of different podcasts every week. I listen to podcasts I've never heard before very regularly. If somebody, you know, like I was in the studio uh, with Blood Clot last week and Manny, the bassist, uh, he was like, oh, there's this podcast uh, behind the bastards. You know, first thing I did the next morning is put that podcast on because I need to also study it and do it. The problem becomes, and this is why a lot of people don't like music is as you become acutely attuned to all those flaws, is there all you can hear in a lot of people's other other people's work? So my yeah. problem is, and you know, this is yet again going to sound a little egotistical, but I know, and I will brag to say, is like, I know I'm one of the best podcast producers in the game. I that's why I'm able to produce a lot of very popular podcasts, and I hear so many things that just suck with so many podcasts that it makes it very hard for me to listen and not get aggravated and want to turn it off. And it's the same reason I find it hard to listen to a lot of indie rock is I'm just like, Oh boy, that drummer is in a bad pocket. Oh boy. Somebody really could have EQ'd that frequency out of that guitar. Oh man. And the same goes for me for podcasts and it makes it difficult. But when I find ones I'm into, you know, like, for example, I found that podcast I was very late to the game on uh, Reply All. Mm -hmm. And now I'm listening through every episode of it because I absolutely love it. And it's incredibly well produced. Way, way better produced than what I do. And, and yeah, that's almost a separate issue just because podcasts are like kind of because of how we interface with them. They're very much a lo-fi format. Yes, that is very much the thing. I mean, you know, like one of the biggest problems I have on the new abnormal, the big political podcast I produce is like one of the hosts is on the road. So we constantly have bad audio. And then the other host is not very technically inclined. And so I have to use backup recordings uh, constantly. So, uh, you know, there's times episodes actually sound terrible. I would argue my production, what we discuss and the 
uh, editing of the pace still sounds good, but the actual audio quality could sound fucking abhorrent at times. How do you handle that as a guy who takes his work pretty goddamn seriously? Uh, there is a point where you say there's only so much I could do. You know, I can't turn to... So, like, one of my hosts is Rick Wilson from The Lincoln Project. Rick is right now the number one person trying to fight the fascist state Donald Trump is trying to create off. I can't conceivably turn to Rick and say, Rick, you know, I really need you to book hotel rooms with better Wi-Fi, and then I need you to get in the closet and record and be hot for an hour. You know, like, there's certain things where you say the diminishing returns of what's happening, it it doesn't really matter. It's the same thing as, like, you know, with Killed by Desk, we do a good, we do a pre-interview to make sure that the person has a good recording because we're going to be there for with them for 90 minutes and we want the guests to sound good. You know, what's also interesting with Killed by Desk is uh, a lot of our guests are people who are going to ha- either have never talked about the thing they're going to talk about or very rarely. They're not doing a lot of podcasts. Yeah. So we want to make sure that it, this, you know, since this might be the definitive piece on this, that it is very legible and easy to take in. So it matters a lot more. Whereas the new abnormal, we get a good amount of people listening to back episodes, but you know, after about three weeks, the podcast is essentially a done thing that no one needs to hear again. So there's differences between how much you have to take quality seriously between the evergreenness of a podcast, I'd say. So now to circle back to music, you, I I don't really ask everyone this question because most people don't have an actual goddamn book about being a DIY musician. Mm -hmm. Let's say I'm a band. My record is done. Mastered by you. Mm Mm-hmm. Who do I need to look at hiring and what do I need to be, what traits do I need to be looking for within those people? Mm, That's a great question. Okay. So we're saying look look to hire for promotion. Who to hire and what to look for in those people. But I'm saying in promotion? Yeah. Generally marketing your record. Everything's done. What I say about everybody is, is you need to fill in your blanks. You know, you always hear the story about Trent Reznor marching into TVT records and with the full marketing plan on a board and just going through and be like, here it is. We're done. All you have to do is follow the plan I've made. 99.9% of musicians are not that. So the first thing you need is somebody who's going to help you with a marketing strategy. So that's, for example, what I do. And while it will sound selfish to say this, everything else is a little downstream from that. Because if you hire a publicist and you have bad marketing ideas, all they're going to do is draw attention to your bad ideas and your badly executed form. Yeah. And then you're just going to get a bad reputation. So the first thing you need to consider is what is strategy. And so I'm, that's what I do for a good amount of my living as well. I know it sounds ridiculous at this point when I say this many jobs, but five times a week, I sit on the phone with people for a few hours and we figure out how they're going to market their music. So then after that, my role becomes very gone. But what you want to have is somebody who understands what that is. And, you know, there's an interesting thing. I am very practiced in this because I've been doing that for two decades. But it's actually just a set of questions for the most part. And then a lot of brainstorming. Now, I've studied brainstorming. I know a lot of those things. But it really isn't that hard to come up with a strategy. And it's why a lot of musicians can do that on their own is that they've just observed enough of what people do 
Now, what they don't have is always the experience of that, you know, a band with 200 monthly listeners on Spotify imitating and going, oh, I know what to do. I saw this band with 2 million followers do it. They get smacked in the face of reality that a band like that doing the same things as the big artists, it does not work at all. You need to have strategies that work at the bottom, and a lot of people haven't observed those. So then after that, though, what you need is then you need two legs. You need creative, and then you need um, people who are going to call attention. So, you know, to give you a nice plug, it's like if there's an ad budget, I tell people to talk to you. If there is uh, a publicity thing, I go very genre-specific. That makes sense. Publicity, the things people make a big mistake about is publicity is largely connections. Um, and even when I say publicity, I mean playlist promotion or talking to blogs, getting you video features. It's pretty much, I mean, my girlfriend does this for a living. We take reps out for drinks. You know, it's like that thing. Like that is part of the life is that she has to do that. And her company pays for her to do that. And it is relationship maintaining and people miss that a lot. And so that also makes it very genre specific. So you're going to call the attention calling people. So that's advertising and publicity. And then there's the creative. So every genre, what works in creative is going to be different. So videos are the highest currency in pop. Uh, whereas, you know, doing something more fashion based, may be a thing more in a dance world, um, booking agents, while it's not creative, uh, you know, if you have a booking agent already on the team and that booking agent's going to be getting on tour with a lot of people, the creative might be set stage designer is more important than your music video director. Finding what in that marketing strategy is going to do you right in your things. I mean, if you're a fucking nerd, uh, I may in the strategy, instead of investing in music videos, we might be investing in you having a podcast producer because it'll do you better for your nerdy ass to talk to a bunch of people on podcasts that are way more popular than you and then bring people's attention to you than any music video is going to do because you look like a dork and we're never going to make you look cool in a music video. So that's all why all this has so many variables. But yeah, those are basically the people I then tell people to hire. So what do you look for in those people? In the publicists, like I said, or the playlist promoter, uh, I look for who their solid connections are. I ask them what they think is realistic that they can do for this artist. So, and that's a very different thing. You know, working with a mid-level artist who has, let's call it 100,000 monthly listeners on Spotify is going to be a lot different from what they think they can deliver for somebody who has 2,000. So with that, I'm going to see what they say they can do. Then as well, with the creatives, I'm going to look at what their work in the past has been. I'm going to talk to them about the objectives of the project, make sure they get it. You know, one of the worst problems with creators is let's say they have a real fetish for uh, 80s movies. They just fucking love Neverending Story. And then some of them will want to put Neverending Story on every fucking project. And that doesn't work if the aesthetic is very uh, not into that. Um, with most artists I've worked with, we've already made a, as cheesy as it sounds, mood board. Now, what I mean by a mood board is things that other people have done that they think might work well in their image just so that we have a general universe to work with. If the creative is repulsed by what they see or I sense that they're not vibing with it, even if I like their past work, we might have to do some more research and find somebody better because that's that's a bad sign. Because usually if they're not 
feeling it and getting excited with that, it usually means they're going to impose their will and their will is going to be not what we want. It is the 0.01% chance that when a meeting happens with a creative and they don't like the mood board and the vision and the creative direction that we've given, that it works out well. Yeah. So I want to make sure that person's on board more than anything, because yet again, if I'm going to be really involved with the project, like I am with some of the things I do, I'm going to be watching with a handful eye and I'm good enough to say, no, this is not the vibe. And I'm, I know how to bail things out. You know, like I recently re-edited a video for a friend whose project I worked with because I knew they had good footage. Like you can bail things out, but I'm getting digression. What I want to see in that person is enthusiasm and a willingness to work with us to the level we want. Now, here's an interesting thing is some of the bands I've talked to lately, particularly consulting with some younger bands lately, they have no idea what they want. They want a video director who's got a good idea. So then I'm going to ask the video director, what are the good ideas? Now, also, this could be a producer. Some of these artists don't have a very solid vision for who they are yet and what their sound is. You know, the biggest thing you see with artists who are not like, let's call it band type artists, like where you're writing your own songs and then you just need somebody to capture it, is that the producer is going to bring some sort of extra thing to that project and they're going to find a sonic identity that becomes them you know i'm going to look for a lot of vision i'm going to look for somebody who really says you know instead of following our lead is saying here's what i see this person doing here's my ideas here's my things and sending us examples you know like one of the biggest signs i often see is like i was just helping this artist with uh finding their direction and i suggested they work with this producer and like three hours after the interview they're like here's six of my beats that I think would go with like what you think you are. And they were really in line. I was like, yeah, that's impressive. You should work with that person. I think that's a good way to put it and a good place to kind of wrap this up. Do you have any sort of final points you want to get into before we close it? If we're talking a lot about hiring, it's the cliche of cliches, but I think my gut has rarely been wrong. And I don't want to say, oh, I have a good intuition. I think most people have a good intuition of when someone's not the right people person to work with some people are broken brained sure you probably know if you're broken brained uh but trust your gut on that person uh truly i mean I, you know i've known some people i have a friend who always says like i'm a bad judge of character i hate everybody um you're gonna know who's the right person you're gonna feel the vibe trust that vibe and look at other options if the vibe's not feeling good thank you so much for joining us jesse it was a goddamn pleasure Thank you again for listening to that really insightful interview with our friend Jesse Cannon. You know, definitely a guy to follow. Uh, check out all his stuff on Useformation. He focuses on transparency in a way I find truly admirable. And also, be sure to tune in next week to the Indian Ninja podcast because we have the one and only Blasco. That's right. Ozzy Osbourne's bassist, Zach Wilde's manager. We're going to get into a lot of interesting stuff. This episode was produced and sound designed by Brad Worrell at Soundwag. Music by Outburst and Killing Time, courtesy of Blackout Records. Indie Ninja's Attack is powered by Indie.Ninja, the freelance marketplace for the music business where you can hire designers, motion graphic experts, and top marketers to help you with all the thankless, invisible jobs that go into launching a record or career. Opinions expressed on this podcast may or may not be the opinions of Indie.Ninja, Inc.
One Hit Thunder is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know. Each week, we're joined by a guest from the world of music or comedy to learn more than you ever thought you would about some songs that you can't forget. And we decide if they brought the one-hit thunder or nothing more than a one-hit blunder. Look, if you listen to the show, you're probably going to laugh, and I guarantee you're going to crush next time the bar has music trivia. Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods.